Father eternal, we have just uh, sung, my God has spoken, and I have heard. Uh, Lord God, how we long for that to be uh, our testimony as we leave uh, this place this evening. My God has spoken, and we have heard. Um, Lord God, it is only you who knows truly what it is that we need to hear. And so we ask, Lord God, that as your children gather uh, before you and gather around your throne uh, this evening, and as we open uh, this letter to the Philippians, we pray that as uh, our Heavenly Father, you would speak uh, to your, your family, that we would hear the voice of our Father, that we would hear the strong voice of God, and that you would do a work within us that is most uh, necessary, O Lord. So we, we pray and we ask, please speak uh, to us, your people. Minister to us by your Holy Spirit. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, in the weeks uh, that followed my own uh, personal coming to Christ, in the weeks that followed my conversion, I remember vividly uh, attending a particular 20s and 30s event in my local church. So I'd just become a Christian. I attended uh, this 20s and 30s event, and it was on the subject of role models in the faith. Role models in the faith. I'm sure you get the idea. The leader of the meeting, what he was doing was stressing the importance of learning and learning from other Christians. And what he was doing through the course of the meeting was he he was giving ideas of the sorts of people Of course, apart from the Lord Jesus Christ, what sorts of people we can learn from as Christians. And I'm sure you could probably fill in the blanks and give some suggestions yourself, couldn't you? And he was talking about other biblical characters. There's been good examples for us. And he was talking about maybe believing parents. That's a good example. He was talking also about maybe elders in a a church sometimes as being an example to follow. You all get the idea. Do you role models, role models in the faith? Well, in the letter to the Philippians, what has the Apostle Paul done thus far? No, first of all, really the spotlight has been on himself, hasn't it? I mean, he has, in the first part, he has encouraged the Philippians, how? By saying that the gospel is still advancing in Rome, despite his chains. Remember from chapter 1? Then what does Paul do? Now, you maybe notice what he does. He turns the spotlight from himself and his own circumstances. And in that middle section from chapter 127 to 218, he actually turns the spotlight on the Philippians, doesn't he? And he begins to talk to them about what the Christian life should look like. Well, this evening, what does Paul do? This evening, Paul turns back to himself and his own plans. And as he does that, what we find before us in this section is actually three individuals that are mentioned. So there's Paul, there is Timothy, what's the third one? Epaphroditus. And these are men that are spoken of, I think, in a paradigmatic way, or spoken of as examples. And I think that should be music to our ears at St. Peter's this evening. Because what do you know, Christian friend? You know that it's not just the 20s and 30s, and it's not just young people. Surely we all know that Each one of us, if we are going to live for the Lord Jesus Christ, we all need role models. 
role models in the faith. So would you please turn with me to Philippians chapter 2, Philippians chapter 2, and from verse 19. Now, I've mentioned that there's three individuals that are highlighted, so it won't come as a surprise to you how we're going to structure this sermon. We're going to think about three examples, these three individuals. So first of all, let's think about the example of the Apostle Paul, the example of the Apostle Paul. Now, we are a nation of planners, aren't we? A nation of planners. For previous generations before us, what did they have to do? They, they, ate, uh, they lived hand to mouth. They didn't they? People in previous generations, they struggled and they focused on just what they were going to eat that very day. Well, what has our relative affluence enabled us to do? We don't have to worry so much in, in such urgent circumstances. We've got a little bit of space and time. So what do we do? We plan. That's what a relative affluence has enabled us to do. And boy, have we embraced the idea of planning, haven't we? What do we plan for? We plan for holidays. We plan for what? For retirement. There is family planning. There is career planning. We have five-year plans, do we? We have 10-year plans. We really go to town on these things. Well, in Philippians 2 in front of us, actually, you'll find that Paul himself plans three different journeys, doesn't he? Now, do do you see, if you think about it chronologically with me, he plans what for, he has planned for Epaphroditus to go to Philippi. Then what's the second journey? He plans for Timothy to go to Philippi. And then did you get the third one? Verse 23, verse 24. Ah, yes, Paul himself is also planning to, to go to Macedonia. Now, for, for the time being, it sounds terrible, but for the time being, you'll forgive me here, forget about Timothy, okay? And forget about Epaphroditus. It might sound bad, but you, you get the idea. For, for the time being, instead, focus on the Apostle Paul. Now, I think if you do that, and if I do that, and we focus on Paul here, then there are at least a couple of lessons that you can learn and I can learn about how we as Christians can plan and how we should plan as Christians. A couple of lessons. The first is this. In his plans, we see that Paul sacrificially prioritizes other Christians in his life. Now, let me say that again. So there's a couple of lessons. First, in the way that Paul plans, he sacrificially prioritizes other Christians in his life. Now, what on earth do do I mean by that? Well, I think if you, Christian friend, if you've ever gone through a very hard time, a really fiercely hard time in your life, I'm sure you will know this to be true, that it's when we go through the hardest trials, when you and I go through the really the darkest times, it's then where we truly appreciate the support of the loved ones we have in our life. If you've gone through a hard time, you know that to be true, don't you? So where do we go? Let's say a diagnosis comes, or we're going through treatment, or we're bereaved, or we'll lose our job. And isn't it the case that at those times, that's when having the support 
of loved ones in our lives is thin. It comes into its own and it becomes this truly incredibly valuable thing to us. Isn't that right? Well, well, I'm asking you to remember Paul's circumstances. It's so easy to read through Philippians and forget where he is and what's going on. What's happened? Where's Paul? Remember, don't we? He's under house arrest. You think about the horror of that. And he's chained up to this Roman garden. I think what we've learned already in Philippians is that actually Paul has not had an abundance of support from that congregation in Rome. Do you remember from chapter 1? There was opposition from some of those people in Rome. So think about that circumstance. And now think about how wonderful it would have been for Paul to have men like Timothy. And men like Epaphroditus near him. Can you imagine how welcome that support would have been to have those men? And they're there and they can look after Paul and meet his needs. And here he's got a couple of Christian brothers and they can pray for him. Wouldn't it be lovely and welcoming? And what do you read here? Isn't that amazing? Paul is actually willing to send both of those Christian men away. And why? Do you see it? Look at verse 28, for example. He's willing to send them away that the Philippians might rejoice. Isn't that amazing? And in a sense, is it not, as we're reading this, is it not so alien to you and to me? Because you, you know what we are like. How do we plan? Like, how are we planning? What are we hoping for? Isn't it so often that our plans revolve around just ourselves? Isn't that right? Come on. What do we plan for? You know, we're planning for our comfort. We're planning for that retirement will be, be quite nice. Doesn't this seem so alien? And so what do we ask? We ask, well, well, how can our hearts change? How can we have this sacrificial concern in our planning? Well, that takes us to the second lesson that we learn from the Apostle Paul. And that is that in his planning, Paul submits profoundly in his planning to the Lord Jesus Christ. Can I say it again to make sure you've got it? In his planning, Paul submits profoundly to Jesus Christ. Have a look down with me at the text here. I don't know what you had for your lunch, but uh, I'm guessing you had salt and pepper shakers on your table. Did you? If you look at this text here, it's very much like it's well-seasoned with gospel terminology. Did you notice that all the way through this text here? I mean, look at, look at it. Verse 21, the interests of Jesus Christ. Verse 22, he talks about service. What sort of service? Service in the gospel. Verse 29, receive him. How? Receive him in the Lord. Verse 30, So the work of Christ. Did you see it? Do you see how well seasoned it is with gospel terminology? But did you notice that in specific relation to how Paul plans? Do this with me. Look at verse 19. So many places we could look, but look at verse 19. What does Paul say? What does Paul write? Does Paul write, I, I plan to send Timothy? Is that what you've got in front of you? Does he say, I hope to send Timothy? What does he say? He says, I hope. How does he plan? I hope in the Lord Jesus. I hope in the Lord Jesus. I'm planning in the Lord Jesus. Do you see how enlightening it is? Do you see how revealing it is? 
What does Paul do? In everything, all of Paul's plans are orientated around the Lord Jesus Christ. All of Paul's plans are focused on Christ. They are submitted to the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul does not do what you do and what I do. You know, our best, this is what we're like, isn't it? We make our plans, and very often our plans are very self-centered. And at our best, we might throw out a pious comment or two. You know, we plan really selfishly, and then we say, Lord willing. You know, we, we plan very selfishly and say, oh, if the Lord wills. And then we get back to our self-seeking and self-interest. Paul is not like that here. Paul really is planning in a Christ-centered way. First of all, wrestling with God in prayer for a knowledge of his will. Then Paul is willing to bend and alter his plans if Christ desired. If you look at verse 24, he then goes out trusting in the power of Christ to accomplish the plans. Isn't that amazing? Isn't it? Can I ask... What are you planning just now? All of us in this room, all of us are are making plans. What are you planning for at this point in your life? What are you planning? What is the central motivation of that plan? Is it personal gain, personal advance, or is it the advance of the gospel? In the face of what we see in Paul and his example, I think we have to ask ourselves tonight, are we planning? Are we willing to plan, plan in the Lord Jesus, even if it comes at an incredible, incredible cost to ourselves? So we see the example of who? The Apostle Paul. Then we move focus, don't we? We move on and we consider the example, second of all, the example of Timothy. The example of Timothy, as we see it here now. Here, what I think we have to do briefly is I think we have to ask and answer just a few very brief preliminary questions with Timothy before we actually get to the heart of the matter. So I think what we have to do is ask the usual sort of preliminary questions, who, what, why, before we really get to the the meat and the main matter with Timothy. So follow me through those preliminary questions, will you? So, Timothy... Who are we dealing with here? If I, I was to ask you, Timothy, who, who's, who's Timothy? What would, what would we say? You would maybe be saying, well, Andy, it's, he is the co-signatory of this letter, isn't it? Do we remember that? That he is, who is named by Paul right at the very start of this letter? That, now, that's fine. But we can do a bit better than that, can't we? If we look at verse 22 here. Do you notice that Paul speaks of Timothy as a son? As a son to a father. And that really helps us, Christian friend, doesn't it? What does that remind you of? Reminds you that, that Timothy, in a sense, was kind of Paul's young apprentice. We use the word of assistant a lot, don't we, at the moment. That's what we're dealing with, aren't we? Timothy, who is he? He's Paul's assistant in gospel work. So we've, we've got who. We can tick that box. What's the next question? What? Is the plan here with me? So again, let me do that. Let me place that with you, to you. What's the plan here? What does Paul plan to do with Timothy? We could say, well, he plans to take Timothy and to send him from Rome 
off to Philippi. Is that what we would say? But, but wait a minute. When? Do you notice we can flesh it out a little bit if you look at verse 23? Yes, Paul hopes to send Timothy, but it's only after the outcome of this trial. Remember that. Remember the weight on Paul's shoulders. He's imprisoned. He could be sentenced to death, and it's only after that has been resolved that then he's going to send Timothy. So we've got what? Who? We've got what? <laughs> but then, genuinely, we have to ask, don't we? Why? Do you see? Why on earth would Paul send Timothy to Phil? Do, 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 do you see why that's a valid question? Think about it for a moment. Paul has already sent Epaphroditus. Do you see? Like, why on earth? You've sent this ambassador, you've sent this brother away. Why on earth would you, would you send Timothy? Well, I think if you look down at your text... I actually think the sequence and the order of the text here gives you and me the answer. Now, did everybody notice that this is chronologically out of order? Do you notice that? If it was chronological, Paul would have written about Epaphroditus first because he's already sent Epaphroditus, wouldn't he? He would write about Epaphroditus. I've sent Epaphroditus chronologically and then he would write about Timothy. And Paul doesn't do that. Paul... He leaves Epaphroditus, and Paul deals with Timothy. He deals with Timothy first. He deals with Timothy immediately after that middle section about the Philippians and the Christian life. Do you see the answer? Why is it that Paul is sending Timothy? He's sending Timothy to encourage the Philippians to live out that middle section well. Do you see it? He's sending Timothy to, to Philippi to, to make sure, to encourage the Philippians to embrace that call that we've looked at over the last couple of months, that call to unity, that call to humility. And then for Timothy, do you see it in verse 19? Timothy is to come back to Paul and bring him, bring him a good report. So we see it. We've got it. Who and what and why is he sending Timothy? But then we've got to ask, well, what is the heart of the matter here? Well, if you've been um, at St. Peter's um, throughout the summer in the last wee while, and if you cast your minds back a little bit, uh, maybe you'll remember that a while ago, maybe a couple of months ago, I talked about uh, letter-writing conventions in the ancient world. Do you remember that? As those words come out of my mouth, they sound to me like the most boring words that anyone has ever said. <laughs> Letter writing conventions of the ancient world. That's really going to grab us, isn't it? But maybe you remember. Do you remember? Do you remember that I talked about a friend that we have who's set up in business and she takes old chairs and sofas and she re upholsters these in incredibly bright, expensive uh, fabric? Do you remember? And, and do you remember I, I was saying that's what Paul does? Like Paul takes the really dull, boring letter-writing conventions of the ancient world, and what he tends to do is embellish these with gospel truth and gospel terminology. Well, there was, listen, there was a convention in the Greco-Roman world when you're writing a letter, and the convention was that somewhere in that letter, it was expected that you would write a commendation 
of the person who's delivering the letter or the person you are sending to the recipient. Do, do you see the idea? Like, maybe most of us have at some stage written a reference for another person. Have we done that? In the workplace, you've written a reference for somebody or you've asked somebody to do It's a similar idea. In the ancient world, you write a letter, you would write a commendation of praise for the person who's either delivering the letter or you're sending the Now, Paul does that here with Timothy, but I really long for you to see not just how beautiful it is, but how clever it is. So I would ask everyone in the room to have a look at verse 20 to see this commendation of, uh, of Timothy. Look at verse 20. I'll give you a second just to find it. Verse 20. So, so beautiful. So he writes, For I've got no one like him. I have no one like him who will be like, genuinely concerned for your welfare, he says to the Philippians. Now, please look at the next bit in verse 20. For they all seek their own interests, not the interests of Jesus Christ. Now, to ensure that we're all looking at it, I'm going to read it again. <laughs> I love it so much. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare, for they all seek their own interests, not the interests of Jesus Christ. Now, I'm sure everybody sees what, what Paul is doing. What's he doing? He's praising Timothy by way of a contrast. Do you notice that's what he's doing? Surely you do. He's saying, Timothy's great. And partly, Timothy is great because he ain't like those other people. So what questions in our minds? The question in my mind is, well, who's the other people? Do, do you see what I mean? Who are the selfish people here? Now, I think there's two lots of people. I think Paul has got one eye on some in Rome. If you think back to chapter 1, do you remember that there was people in Rome who were preaching Christ from wrong motives? Do you remember that? Preaching Christ from position of envy and rivalry and self-seeking? I think Paul's got one eye on them. But I also think Paul's got another eye on some, listen, some in Philippi. Because you do this with me, look at verse 4, chapter 2, verse 4. Now remember what he said, he's, he's talked about self-interest. And look at verse 4. He says to those in Philippi, let each of you look not only to his own interests, but the interests of of others. So it's exactly the same language. Do you see it? And I think, Christian friends, when we hold up this contrast and we see how black and dark a portrait of those self-centered people we have here, would you not agree that what Paul says of Timothy is absolutely beautiful? Because who is Timothy? Timothy is shown to us as somebody who genuinely does pursue the interests of Jesus Christ above absolutely everything else. Who's Timothy shown to you here? Someone who loves Christians. Someone who absolutely loves Christ's church. He's shown to you as someone who is truly concerned for believers. But it's not just the believers around him. Timothy is concerned for believers in other parts of the world. This is a commendation, but it's a commendation to end all commendations in a sense. 
So with Timothy, we've, we've asked a lot of questions, haven't we? Who, what, why, and what is the heart of the matter? I think you know as well as I do, there's one question remaining with Timothy. We are supposed to apply this. How do we apply this? Well, between you and me, there are awful lot of people who seem to bemoan this section of scripture that we are in uh, this evening. Uh, there's a lot of people who talk about this as being mundane. You know, that there's not a lot of theology in this section. There's not a lot of gospel truth that is mundane. Well, whatever. Whatever. Surely as you read this tonight, surely you see that God is giving St. Peter's not only a helpful but a very practical truth. Because pastorally, as I go about the congregation and get to know you, I find that you're the same as me. Now what we do is we talk an awful lot about trying to discern God's will don't we? All the time. And we try to wrestle through, well, what is it that really pleases Christ? What is it? How is it that I can live in a light of way that pleases Jesus Christ? What is Christ concerned truly about? And don't we learn the answer here? Like, does not Paul here show us what is what is the interest of Christ? That's his language. What it, Christ is utterly concerned about. And what is the answer? As someone else has said, the interest of Christ, Philippians 2, is the welfare of his people. What is Christ concerned about? He is concerned that the children of God, that we show the love of God to other people of God for the glory of God. Isn't that it? I'll read it again. The interest of Christ here in Philippians 2 is the welfare of his people. And so let me remind you what I said at the start. Because of the verbal links with the previous section, I think Paul is holding up before your eyes tonight, Timothy, as an example. Should we not follow Timothy's leads? Here we've got a man who is willing, think about it, the ancient world. He is a man who is willing to crisscross the ancient world. He is willing to go from Rome to Macedonia and back again, if it will be of any benefit to the people of God. Can we not pray for a heart like that? Can we not pray that we will be concerned for Christians, Christians here in St. Peter's, but Christians in other parts of the world? All that we might, like Timothy, follow the interests of Jesus Christ. So we see the example of the Apostle Paul. Then second of all, we've seen the example of Timothy. And then thirdly and lastly, we get to Epaphroditus. So the example of Epaphroditus. Now, I'm pretty sure you probably all saw that there's a change of tense. Did you see it with Epaphroditus? So he has said, I hope to send Timothy. So it's future. I hope to send Timothy. What does he say about Epaphroditus? He says, I have thought it necessary. Now, why has he changed the tense? Why? Because he's already done it hasn't he? This is past tense. Paul has already sent Epaphroditus. So think about it from the Philippians perspective. They're reading this out, this letter in the church. Let's say, where is Epaphroditus? He's standing with them. He is already in their company. Now, if you, as I'm sure you did, if you think 
that what Paul says about Timothy in his commendation is beautiful, then what he says about Epaphroditus, Christian friends, is going to blow your mind. It's, it's so beautiful. And I think if we just pay heed to how Paul commends Epaphroditus, I think we'll learn a couple of brief lessons about how you and I can follow better the Lord Jesus Christ. Two lessons. First is this. We see that a true focus on the gospel leads to a deep, shared Christian love. I'll say it again. From Epaphroditus, we see a true focus on the gospel leads to a true, deep, shared Christian love. Do this with me. Look at the text. Look at the Epaphroditus text. Have a look at it there from verse 25. What do you see? Just skim it. What do you see? I suppose almost as an aside, <laughs> it's amazing to see how Epaphroditus feels about his fellow Christians. Don't you think in verse 26? What's, what's the term that is used here? How is Epaphroditus feeling about his fellow believers? And look at your own heart as you read it. What does he say? He is longing for his fellow believers. Isn't that beautiful? So here we have a Christian and he is pining. Like genuinely yearning to be in the company of the Christians from his own congregation. It's lovely in itself, isn't it? But then notice how Paul speaks of Epaphroditus in verse 25. Now surely this grabs your attention, did it? In verse 25, Paul uses five terms. Do you see them? Five terms to describe Epaphroditus. So you've got three of Epaphroditus' relationship. Paul, two of Epaphroditus' relationship with the church in Philippi. Look at the language. Paphrodite is a fellow laborer, the idea of a spiritual warrior in the front line with him, part of his Christian family and so on. Isn't it lovely? Isn't it beautiful? But I've got a question. Surely it's a question that's hanging in the air here. It's amazing, right? I mean, he's describing Epaphroditus beautifully. Here's the question, though. Why? Why is Paul so effusive in his commendation? Because what's the obvious thing? Say, what, what do you know? Why is he going to town like this when the Philippians know everything there is to know about Epaphroditus? Epaphroditus is from Philippi. He's one of them. Why is Paul going on to town like this? Why is he being so effusive? Do you see the answer? Surely it's this. Paul is so effusive in his praise at this moment simply because he loves Epaphroditus so much. I mean, this letter is giving Paul an opportunity to wax lyrical about a Christian brother. And he feels so deeply about Epaphroditus that he is grabbing this opportunity with both hands. You see, he loves him. Such is the affection Paul has for Epaphroditus. It is just overflowing out of him and overflowing onto this page. And that is so lovely for us to consider. But I want you to appreciate how necessary this is. What is it that Scotland needs? Scotland needs so much. What does Scotland need? One thing Scotland needs is Christians that have more than superficial engagement. 
Scotland needs Christians that are not simply acquaintances. Scotland needs Christians. Christians that are devoted to each other. Christians that will stand with each other. Christians that long for each other. And that is a reality that will only arise if we, like the Apostle Paul here, our, our first focus is on Jesus Christ. And then the second lesson, we come into land with this. We see here a true focus on the gospel, and I hear it, a true focus on the gospel leads to a willingness to die for Jesus Christ. True focus on the gospel leads to a willingness to die and die for Jesus Christ. I think even a cursory glance at the text this evening reveals that Epaphroditus clearly went through something that was incredibly dramatic. Wouldn't you say so? Did you notice that three times in the text, Paul says that this man, Epaphroditus, nearly died. Paul emphasizes that, not once, not twice, but three times, he nearly died. Now, the details of that and what happened are really, really quite difficult to pinpoint. But what I want to do is, we close this, just to suggest what I think is the most likely, and there's quite a lot of kids in the room. So I know it's t- you're tired, right? It's a long night, staying up late. But I want you to try and listen to what seems most likely to have happened to Epaphroditus, and it's exciting if you listen to it, okay? So what happens? Well, the Philippians, the Philippian congregation, they have heard that Paul has been arrested for preaching the gospel. And they know, wow, Paul is in deep need because it's not like meals were provided. It's not like meals were provided in a first century prison. Okay, so Paul is in deep need and the Philippian congregation know this. So what do the Philippians do? Do you know what they do? They get a collection together quickly, rapidly. They get this gift for the Apostle Paul and they give this gift to Epaphroditus. And Epaphroditus is to take this all the way from Macedonia, all the way to to Rome. Now this is where it gets really interesting. Don't lose me, stick with me, okay? It seems most likely that along the way on this journey, it seems most likely that Epaphroditus got ill. Now, when I say ill, do you know what I mean? Sick. That's what I mean. Really sick. Really sick. To the point that it looks like Epaphroditus is on his deathbed. Now, Yes, the Philippians learn about this. And yes, later on, Epaphroditus is worried about how they're worried for him. But what I want you to focus on, what I want you to think about, what I want you to notice is the choice that Epaphroditus had. Because he's there and he's he's traveling and he's stuck and he's ill on this journey, it seems. And it looks like he might be dying and he's faced with a choice. What's the choice? He could stay where he is and hope that he gets better. Doesn't sound good, does it? What he could do is he could go back to Philippi. That makes sense, doesn't it? He goes back to Philippi, around all the people that he knows, and maybe the doctors that he knows, and he could go back and hopes it gets better. There's a third thing he could do. He could take the risk. And though he's really, really, really ill, sick, maybe at the point of death, he could push on, and he could 
try and get to, to Rome and to the Apostle Paul. And do you see what happens? Look at verse 30. Such, for, such is his concern for the gospel work and the advance of the kingdom of God. What does he do? Epaphroditus, he plows on. Look at the language. Verse 30, though he nearly died for the work of Christ, he risked his life to complete your service, to bring this gift, to complete it. He risked his life to do it. It is amazing, isn't it? Who is Epaphroditus? But he is a man who is willing to risk all for the kingdom of God. Epaphroditus is a man who could see that the worth, the value of the Lord Jesus Christ is something that outstrips everything else, even his own life, in terms of value and importance. And so if Scotland, if Scotland needs Christians that love each other, how much more does Scotland need Christians like Epaphroditus? Isn't that the case? How we should pray for it, for a zeal, a fervor, a desire, a passion that would see you and I lay down everything, even our own lives, if it meant bringing any honor to the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then we close with us, Christian friend, a reminder of our motivation for why we would follow these men. Can I ask you, why would we study Paul, Timothy, and Epaphroditus tonight and talk about them as role models. Why, why would we do that? Why would we try and live like that? Is it, do you think, that we might try and earn some favor with God? Is that the reason? Is it a sense of duty? Is it a sense of responsibility? Is that what we're trying to do here? No, we do this out of gratitude to our God for what God has done for us as people, for us as church. Because look at it. Yes, what is it? Paul plans sacrificially? Marvelous. Timothy acts sacrificially? Marvelous. Epaphroditus is willing to suffer? <laughs> sacrificially, does it not pale into utter insignificance when compared with what Jesus Christ has done for you and for me? Even planning and the covenant of redemption, acting perfectly in his life. And then what has Christ done? He actually did lay down his life. He laid it down willingly. He bore our sin. It is out of gratitude for the acceptance we have in God, the forgiveness that we have from God, that we should go out this week and follow the Lord Jesus Christ and in the power of the Holy Spirit also follow those he has given us as role models in the faith. Friends, let's bow our heads and let's pray. Lord God, we do thank you for this portion of Scripture. It, we realize, is not mundane. We thank you so much, Lord God, for the practical truths that we see in this portion of Scripture. Help us to follow the examples of godly men that we see in your words. Lord God, much more help us uh, to follow the example of the Lord Christ that has been set before us so often in Philippians. But help us also to remember the nature of the Christian life, a life lived in gratitude for your saving work. 
the fact that you have done everything to claim us and to bring us to yourself. Oh God, we praise you. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's uh, conclude our time of uh, worship and praise uh, this evening. We're going to sing to God's praise from the hymn, His Mercy is More. His Mercy is More. What love could remember? No wrongs we have done, omniscient, all-knowing. He counts not their sum. Thrown into a sea without bottom or shore. Our sins, they are many. His mercy is more. So friends, let's, if we're able, stand to praise the living God. <laughs>